Welcome to Sports Performance Radio, the science of athletic excellence. Welcome to Sports Performance Radio. I am B. Chavez of Evil Genius Sports Performance. Uh, typically right there I announce I am your host. However, this is one of those clever episodes where that not be the case. Um, this particular episode is my good friend and uh, absolutely brilliant, uh, brilliant good friend, Lyle McDonald, is going to interview me on the subject of PEDs, Performance Enhancing Drugs, for women. Um, I say interview me. The reality is this is very collaborative. Um, Lyle is absolutely brilliant when it comes to women's physiology. Um, not only do I think he's a great person to be doing these this drug series with, period, but a, anything involving the concept of, quote, for females, Lyle is absolutely the person you want on board for that. So what is about to ensue is Lyle McDonald interviewing me on the concept of PEDs for women. This will be part three in our series. First uh, first installment was kind of general concepts for men. Second installment was kind of uh, practical application slash ancillary drugs for men. And now this is kind of the general concepts for women. There may in fact need to be additional podcasts coming to fill in some of the blanks based on listener feedback and that sort of thing. But after the short break, you are going to get Mr. Lyle McDonald interviewing me on PEDs for Women. This is Sports Performance Radio. All right, folks. So uh, this is Lyle McDonald. You probably know who I am, um, either by reputation or otherwise. Uh, I am here with Broderick Chavez of Evil Genius Sports Performance. Once again, I am going to welcome him to his own podcast. We're doing the third part, uh, or I guess this is a, a trilogy series. Uh, I've had him here on his own podcast before to talk about general anabolic steroids, uh, some cycle design stuff, and today we're going to be addressing an issue that I don't think gets talked about enough, which is women and steroids. Um, certainly it's an area that uh, is dominated more by men, but we've got more female athletes coming in. I know I just wrote the book on women's, or a book on women's physiology, but these questions come up, and women certainly have different considerations than men. With that said, uh, I'm sure everyone, of course, knows Broderick. He is a, an expert in the area of anabolic steroids performance enhancement, and I'm more going to be leading the, uh, the interview than contributing, but hopefully we'll get some good information out there. So, Broderick, welcome to your podcast. Lyle, thanks again. Thanks, thanks for having me on my own show, and more importantly, thanks for being here. I really appreciate this, and uh, there's no one else I really would want to do this with. Um, so, all of that said, before we begin, I want to say what I just said off the air to Mr. McDonald. Uh, very, very seldomly do I engage in a drug conversation where I don't feel, genuinely, don't feel like I'm the superior intellect. Uh, this is one of those cases. I'm literally about to engage in a drug-based conversation with a guy who has quote, written the book. So th this is going to be a little bit of a challenge for me, and I do think that uh, the listeners will get some good information. And with that, I, I think we should just begin. Where, where do you want to go, my friend? Um, 
I think it might be worthwhile, you know, to maybe briefly review some of the the stuff you covered so well in the first, well, in the first podcast. Like you had sort of you differentiate, uh, you know, steroids, performance enhancing drugs. I think we are going to be focusing more on steroids and ancillaries. Maybe that'll be part four. Mm. Uh, talked about that. We talked about insulin and metformin and some stuff in in the last one, but um, you know, you discriminate. Uh, performance enhancing drugs in kind of three categories based on structure, effect. I suspect we're going to come back to that. Absolutely. Specifically. So why don't you kind of start by, you know, making sure everybody's up to speed. Well, absolutely. You know, the fundamental hormone in all of this is testosterone. And in case you missed it anywhere along the way, testosterone is not an anabolic steroid. It is a steroid for sure, but not an anabolic steroid. The medical definition, the pharmacological definition of an anabolic steroid is a synth synthetic derivative thereof. So it's not testosterone, it's derived from it. So that's the first major distinction. And by and large, women are going to avoid testosterone as a root compound. Although there are occasions when it can be used, but in general, this conversation will be targeted for women and therefore anabolic steroids. And then of those, there's roughly three major considerations. There's drugs that have been modified to be orally active. They come in a number of different families, but they share some fundamental changes to their chemistry to make them orally active. There are 19 NOR derivatives and there are DHT derivatives. Um, rather than beat that to death now, I suggest people, if that doesn't immediately ring a bell to you, go back and listen to podcast number one uh, and run through that. But knowing that, we have that. We have testosterone at the top. We have DHT, 19 more derivatives. We have very close relatives to testosterone in the middle, and we have orally activated compounds across all three, although in modern times, very, very little in the uh, 19 Nord family. There were some good drugs back in the 70s that just, just don't exist anymore. Uh, so, so as other background, and I think we covered this more in the second podcast we did, right? So you, you brought it up, right? We, we, we think about, we call them anabolic steroids, but we, they are technically anabolic androgenic steroids. Absolutely. Even more so for women than for men. What's that distinction in a physiological sense between an anabolic effect and an androgenic effect? Well, interesting. I, I certainly we should talk about that. And honestly, you might even be better better at this than I. But the problem with this is all of the indexes and tests were done on male uh, subjects. When they did the original anabolic androgenic index, they used the the equivalent of a rat prostate to gauge the male you know impacts, the masculinizing impacts. Now, interestingly, or perhaps not interestingly. Women lack such physiology. So how exactly comparable those are and how relevant that index is, is a strongly debated topic. And my experience as a coach is it's not quite as closely uh, paralleled as, as you would expect. But to answer your question in a very quick capsule version, and the, the rough explanation is the anabolic index would, re would reflect how much muscle that drug can build per unit milligram and the androgenic effect would be roughly how much masculinization per unit milligram and all drugs are different and even within different people and different populations they behave differently and then uh also to to, to continue or maybe even complete that quick capsule view testosterone is considered the the benchmark with 
at a, an assigned anabolic index of 100 and an assigned androgenic index of 100. Now, please remember that that does not mean that it is, in fact, equal or anything of the nature. Those are arbitrary numbers to make a, 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 a scale moving forward. So that, that's really important. Yeah, just like the glycemic index. It's just a defined value. You could have 150 anabolic effect or you could, you know, which doesn't, whatever. It, yes, exactly. it's a defined value. So it's a short version, anabolic tissue building effects, musculature. I don't know where strength would fall in that, but I guess you would consider that. Well, <laughs> that's a whole separate topic. Absolutely. When you say masculinizing, we're talking about body hair, voice deepening, acne, oily skin, basically what happens at puberty, right? Those are your, Absolutely. Those are your andro androgenic effects. Is it, is it worth, okay, so in men, of course, testosterone is, you know, the primary hormone. Now in women, who of course do make testosterone, mm -hmm. we also know that the adrenal androgens, DHEA, androstenedione, some of those others are as, if not more important, in women's physiology specifically. Is this an issue worth considering for the topic we're going to discuss? Well, it certainly is in regards to health. I really can say with a straight face, I'm not really clear how important they are to performance because at large, they're not really applied for performance. You really don't get those hormones in a commercial you know, quantities and, and right. commercial availabilities. And um, Now, I do know from speaking with people in the, in the mix on Olympic caliber, you know, and Olympic levels in some of these foreign countries, I shouldn't throw, say, Jamaica under the bus, but I, I actually spoke with a coach from Jamaica, and apparently they are, in fact, doing that. Now, what, exactly what level of effect and that sort of thing, I was not privy to, but it is, in fact, happening. So I can, I can at least tell you that. Like they're using DHEA or endocrinodione. Yeah, more more the diodes, yes. Okay, because, you know, for example, you know, if you look at, you know, DHA was huge, as we remember. I want to say mid to late 90s, everyone kind yes. of got super excited about it. And it looked great if you were old, and then it kind of mm -hmm. crapped out. But basically, you know, in men, it just didn't have much of an effect. And if there wasn't a pronounced effect on testosterone, it was far more significant in women. I mean, obviously, if you look, if people get bored, go look at the enzymatic pathways. DHEA converts to testosterone downstream, and it may be within the muscle tissue itself, wherever, whatever. It is a precursor for testosterone. That pathway is arguably more active in women than men. Absolutely. Still, actually, just before, as it turns out, a couple days ago, read a paper that number one suggested that 100 milligrams of DHEA in women could take testosterone to the low normal men's range. And let's face it, that's bullshit. Um, but, like, no, seriously, it took him to like a 346 testosterone level. I'm like, there's no way in hell. Apparently, DHEA and testosterone cross react in the acid. Mm -hmm. Um, and then they did a performance study where they just tested them after a month and it, it did kind of jack shit. Um, I have seen work that in women, but not men, DHEA levels are linearly related to leg strength. Um, now I would buy that. To your point that it's a direct effect or simply because it's converting to a testosterone, harder to say. But I think practically for the, this discussion, we're going to, you know, let's face it, DHEA supplementation never really did much. Maybe when you get super old, but for the yeah. most part, 
was it was a bust as a performance enhancer. And, and by and large, in in the you know in vain with this portion of the conversation, I would default to something that Dan Duchesne said to both you and I, and that is dollars of donuts. At the end of the day, if you have the option to just use the hormone, go ahead and do that. Right, and, and leave yeah. that. Even with the Andros, and, and you and I are old enough to remember, you know, <laughs> the Andro craze. I mean, even the Germans were supposedly using it pre-workout just to get them wired up, just yeah. a progression. Because the study showed, yeah, it raised testosterone a little bit, and it raised estrogen just as much. So, like, it wasn't, it, it, it didn't seem to have a profound performance enhancement until you took enough of it. And at that point, you might as well just get steroids. Um, Absolutely. I guess for all practical purposes, we're just going to focus on, you know, the androgens or testosterone and ignore the distinction. That's certainly what I did in my book. I was like, look, androgens mean a bunch of different hormones, but for all practical purposes, this is all that matters. We're just going to call it testosterone. Okay. Agreed. You know, anabolic androgenic effects. We've got the testosterone's oral 19 nors DHT derivatives. Yes. We'll even talk about uh you know cycles or choices or whatever and and we've we've touched on this in previous podcasts right when we give men steroids we are essentially just i guess hyper masculinizing them as like we are adding their primary hormone we are just increasing the levels from small to ridiculous levels depending Mm -hmm. on what women obviously we are introducing a hormone that they have which i believe what is it they make about one so what one tenth to one thirtieth is yes. really like male testosterone, 300 to 900 nanograms per deciliter on average. Women are about 30 to 70, yeah. unless they have one of these odd intersex right. genetic things going yeah. on. Yeah, um, the, the Olympics, the IOC actually flags 90. That's their, that's their flag point is 90 nanograms per deciliter. Gotcha. Right. So we're, lo- we're looking at, you know, like I said, one tenth to one thirtieth on average. Clearly, if we're putting anabolics into women, we're having a potentially much more profound effect in both yes. relative and absolute terms. What general implications, like, so a woman wants to use anabolic steroids, we are basically changing her physiology almost at a fundamental level. What general concerns might she have, even before we get into dosing her amounts? Well, I wouldn't say almost on a fundamental level. I would say that you need to be very pedantic with the point that you are about to engage in sports-based gender change. Now, I'm not saying that with a scare tactic. I'm very in favor of muscular women. I'm married to one. I've loved them my entire life. I have, this is not, I'm not, now I'm not trying to be negative. I'm trying to be exceedingly poignant and realistic. Right. Taking as little as 10 milligrams a day of Anivar, which is kind of the universal starting point for women the world around, you are literally engaging in gender, in gender transformation from a sports performance level. Um, normal human males produce about 10 milligrams of testosterone per day. Taking a 10 milligram tablet literally puts you on equal footing with an 18 year old boy. Now, okay. just, just be aware of that. So with that, then of course comes that entire landslide of potential. And I, I must emphasize potential masculinization because it is not wholesale. Not everyone gets it in the same ways. Um, I will point out some, I hate to even say the word, but some racial differentiation that I have I have noticed uh, because I've done an awful lot of coaching. But the things we're talking about are exactly what you said: thinning of the female hair, growth of body hair, facial hair, 
voice changes, reduction in breast mass, redistribution of body fat, the loss of you know, female fat distribution, and, and the one that no one wants to talk about out loud, and interestingly, I have some separate commentary on, and that is changes to the female genitalia, to the girl parts, basically clitoromegalia. Yeah. Um, and interestingly, going into it, that's always the thing that women are most concerned about. Oh, that's the one that scares them. And literally six months into their drug therapy, that's the one they've got. And it's interestingly, the one they're the least concerned about at that point, they actually find that bigger is better and typically uh, isn't, isn't the problem they thought it was. Yeah, I think, I suspect that's a matter of degrees. Like I, I do know some, some women who've run, you know, Really low dose short cycles, and have reported that they're like, yeah, you know, it wasn't a bad thing. Um, Correct. That if anything, it was. I mean, you know, and we joke, right? We joke that men can't find it, but it's like, yeah, all of a sudden, it was easier to find. It was a little bit bigger. It was way more sensitive. Absolutely. Far more orgasmic potential or pleasure. Like obviously at the extremes, and many listeners may not be old enough to remember this, right? Dan Duchesne had a short. <laughs> called the Dirty Diet, you know already know what I'm talking about, the Dirty Diet Newsletter, which was a weird mix of hardcore science, hardcore drugs, and some baby building stuff, and porn. It was just Dan at his best. It and was. The video, there was a, apparently a lesbian porn, porn video called Becky versus Super Clitty. Yep. And it was a female bodybuilder at the time who supposedly had a three-inch clitoris. Now, if you look like that's, that's the length of your pinky, right? Yep, that's... That that I, I suspect that most women at that point would be fairly dissatisfied. But again, you know, and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll talk about, I guess, dosing and duration. Agreed. Well, like this is obviously not what you and I are talking about. We're talking about where you're talking relatively small increases yeah. in size, visibility, yeah. uh, sensitivity. But and, and, my, and, my, and actually, I can even throw a number out there. My, my rough experience is quote, sensible, moderate sports performance-based drug use should not generate a 50% increase. Um, right. at, at that, is, that is pretty much the kind of the benchmark is if, if things are getting toward the 50%, you know, exaggeration range, something is awry, something is askew. Um, and, and that also seems to be the cutoff where it goes from, oh, this is neat and interesting to, oh, this might be problematic. Sure. Um. Okay, so with that in, all right, so those are, you know, again, the, the major dangers, obviously, um, which is essentially, you know, and are any of these reversible? They absolutely are. Um, there's one other set of, uh, quote, side effects or concerns that we, we need to discuss, and I don't know if either of us are fully um, – capable of really tackling it, but it needs to be said out loud. And that is behavioral changes, drug-driven behavioral changes uh, across the board, ranging from libido to just general demeanor. Because again, they are engaging in, in, in a variety of gender transformation and men simply behave, respond, react differently. So again, I'm, I, I'm not in any way saying this to, as a scare tactic. I'm simply saying it as you spend some time around some hypermuscular women, you will realize they are not girly girls. <laughs> They're just not. Well, it's, it's, you know, there's, there's all those stories. And again, you read the, the, the guys who are in the field that either worked with women or were involved with those women. And they're like, here's what you have to realize. When it's time to have sex, 
you are not given the choice. No, there's no options. They fuck you, not the other way around. When they decide it's time, sex drive is off the map. Um, even the couple of women that I mentioned who were happy with the results. It was really kind of funny, right? Because yeah. previously they're just like, what is with guys? Why are guys, why is all you want sex? And then suddenly they did two months and they're just like, I get it now. Yeah. I get it. I understand why boys are like this all the time. They just reported this relentless, driving, unstoppable sex drive. They're like, I get it now. I get why you guys are like this. Absolutely. And, and, that's, and that's relevant and that's important. Now, as far as reversible, um, reversible is uh, probably a sliding scale depending on the effect. But the most important thing I would say is they are all stoppable. At the discontinuation of drugs, the, 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 the effect no longer continues. So it is very you know, drug driven and therefore controllable by dosage and duration. So that's important. That, that's important. Now, as far as reversibility, um, it, again, it depends very much on what we're talking about. Thinning hair, that absolutely reverses. Voice changes, actually not so much because that is really a structural change okay. in the you know, mass of the vocal cords. And that is probably very uh, – I have seen it reduce, but honestly, I think the reduction was more based on a change in body weight than actually a change in – the actual vocal cord. Um, as far as skin, you, the, the excessive hair growth does diminish over time. Um, however, textural changes within the skin, actual you know, expanding pores, and just general thickening and masculinizing of the of the skin, the dermal tissue, okay. is is very common. And again, that does not. Uh, subside at nearly the same rate. I won't say it doesn't, but it's, it's at a much, much slower rate. And okay. in, interestingly, and this is the one thing that I find most interesting, um, and I have dealt with you know, hypermuscular women literally since a, I'm a teenager. Uh, it's just, just worked out that way. It's just, yeah. it, it could speak about me, but nonetheless. Um, interestingly, you take a male give them some drugs, give them some training. They get muscular. They stop the drugs. They stop the training. They pretty much go back to square one. They okay. do not. Interestingly, women retain, even in the absence of additional training, retain an inordinate amount of muscle. Really? Interesting. Yes, absolutely. Once a female hypermasculinizes herself and becomes hypermuscular, that never fully goes away. Look at pro bodybuilders from the 80s. You know, look at Corey Everson. Look at Linda Murray. These people have no reason to be using pro-level drugs, and they still have bunches of muscle. Um, now, I realize those are like elite cases I just mentioned, but there are also people you can just Google up and find, and you're like, wow, that person's still you know, in their 50s and even 60s. Lots and lots of muscle. Lots. Huh. Interesting. So just without getting too far off topic on that, since it's not really so applied, any like what would the mechanism be? Why would it be so different for women versus like? Because we've seen it, right? There's there's a website somewhere, and all it does is look at pro bodybuilders when they come off. Yeah, guys will drop like sixty pounds. Like, yes, they look like they don't even work out. Why would this be so profoundly different in women? Sixties probably being rather generous to the law. I mean, you know, I mean, again, you know, we're talking about a marquee guy, but Dorian Yates is literally a hundred pounds lighter than he was in the off season. Like, you know, and, and that, yeah, I think there's a before and after of Kevin Lavone. Yeah. Just 
it's absurd. It's yeah. from, oh my God, this is another species too. Yeah, that's the dude I saw at the coffee house last Ab- week. Absolutely. Uh, Flex Wheeler <laughs> falls in the same boat. Yeah, he, yeah. You know, without drugs and training, he is a very svelte little human being. Um, and I'm, I mean, no disrespect by that. It just is. No, no, no. Uh, yeah. That does not seem to be the case with women. Uh, again, and we're seeing it actually across the board in the, this new uh, CrossFit culture where you know, drugs are rather insidious in the CrossFit culture. And yeah. you're seeing people that, you know, they, they leave the training field, they, they reduce their workloads, and, and their physiques do not diminish at the same level as their male counterparts. Now, as far as what is the mechanism behind that, I suspect it's a couple of things, including the fact that um, – especially with those modalities of training, women typically can tolerate and do tolerate uh, higher intensities and higher volumes. And I suspect that more of the actual growth and changes in their physique is contractile protein. It's less driven by sarcoplasmic volumes and those sorts of things. And it's more actual actin myosin proteins and therefore a good deal more permanent. Uh, There might also be some influence on like, you know, myonucleation, nuclear number domain. I'm not a physiologist enough to really speak to that, but there are gender-based differences in those components. Uh, Yeah, uh, yeah, that's absolutely, yeah, that's probably, it'd be interesting actually as I think about it to look at some of the, like the ex-GDR women athletes. Mm -hmm. Whenever I see pictures of them and they're in their 50s, 60s, they're still pretty damn jacked. Absolutely. Um, I've been off of drugs for four decades. They're, they do seem to have retained quite a lot of it, along with a lot of the negative sides, but that's a whole sort of separate uh, separate issue. Um, yeah. All right, so practical stuff, right? Okay. So I know we can talk about, you know, different compounds and we'll get there. I, and I think we touched on this again on different podcasts, all right? So we've established men and women take, well, actually, let's go to dose next. Compound. Okay. Right, so we've got these different sets of compounds. We've got your basic testosterones, which as you pointed out, you know, have all the beneficial effects, but are basically going to masculinize a woman. You've got, you know, the der- various derivatives. You've got, you know, the typical traditional girly drugs, which are like Winstrol, Anavar, Primabol, and when, what, well, what, let's address that first. Why are the traditional girly steroids, and I'm not using that, it's like not meant yeah. to be you know, dismissive or negative. Like this is just the way they're referred to. They're, they're, Correct, light, agreed. they're light anabolic compounds. They don't have the side effects. I mean, Duchesne described them, I think best as just shitty anabolics. Um, like they don't have the profound benefits, but they also don't risk the, the profound negatives. What makes those compounds particularly safe for women? The, the, the biggest issue is that, Chemical alteration, typically starting with the DHT derivative, you know, as, a, as DHT is the root molecule rather than uh, testosterone. And because of chemical alterations, they seem to have a lower affinity for andro- uh, peripheral tissue. They seem to have a less likelihood of binding to skin, hair, scalp, etc. Um, now, the, the real interesting point here is, and it doesn't get mentioned nearly as much as it did, in the 70s and 80s, women really didn't pursue that Anavar, Winstrol, Primabolin route nearly as much as they did Nandrolone. Uh, okay. Decadurabolin was the 
Female drug of choice, without question. Um, almost every female Olympia physique you can think of from the 80s was built largely on nandrolone. Uh, that has changed in the, in the era of sports rather than bodybuilding. And for, for, for good reason, because nandrolone drugs are not particularly good at generating athletic prowess, but physique changes. Okay. So there's been you know, kind of, again, that CrossFit, you know, in, in, uh, culture that has developed. I don't mean to throw them under the bus, although admittedly I don't like them, but that's not what I mean here is there's a performance component and the performance component has really driven the use of the DHT derivatives and they are less masculinizing than testosterone, but certainly not as low as something like nandrolone. Pretty much where I feel that is. Now, the interesting thing, though, is nandrolones in 19 nor derivatives in general, um, although nandrolone is pretty much the only one in modern times women would use. They certainly wouldn't use trenbolone. Uh, okay. But the, the interesting thing with nandrolone is they then bring a, a wash of, quote, different side effects, which are very, very bad for men, that prolactin, uh, you know, progesterone kind of uh, scenario that can, you know, could drive gynecomastia that's not controllable through traditional estrogen management and those sorts of things. But interestingly, those side effects seem to somehow moderate or minimize masculinization within a female physique. So not only is the drug in and of itself less masculinizing, but it seems to have a kind of built-in buffer component um, and, and I find that very, very um, sad that it's not being uh, exploited like it was, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Gotcha. So basically, in essence, the, the, the reasons that would make it all a poorer choice for a man in terms of its progestational rest or whichever prolactin anogenic effects make it a better choice for a woman. It's Absolutely. It's a matter of keeping her hormones more balanced in a sense? I, I, don't, I don't know if I love that wording, but yeah. the answer, but the answer, it sounds a little corny to say it, but I guess in a, in a very practical sense, that, that is the reality. It seems to, as it's elevating the anabolic side, it is also in some way engaging the feministic side, which does seem to counterbalance one another. Now, the, the, the one downside about that is, is, and this is also a reason I believe that the, 19 North family has been largely abandoned by women is you look like you're taking drugs. You get the full, you get the fullness of face. You get the water retention, the carbohydrate retention. You get an, actually you get a gestational look. You, it looks literally a well-medicated female on a 19 North derivative looks like the first few weeks of pregnancy, which personally I, again, I think is a magnificent look, but it, it is what it is. You, you look at the person, you go, something's going on there, and you right. can just pick, you pick it out. And, and let's face it, I mean, without getting into, we could, getting into gender politics, which is a whole, you know, mm. masculinity and femininity, that, you know, in terms of, the, you know, classical definitions, and people know what we're talking about, and again, I'm not being discriminatory or trying to be whatever derogatory, like, that almost loses the quote-unquote the, a feminine look. Which Absolutely. For, for some female athletes, they don't give a damn about, right? Clearly, there's a lot of sports that, you know, the strength power sports, powerlifting, Olympic lifting, strongman, or I guess it's being, well, female strongman or strong woman. I don't know what it's being called <laughs> anymore. I think they finally started calling it strong woman, but, you know, who probably don't, don't give three fifths of a damn as 
we, well, you and I know that I think many people don't talk about in, even in the low level, lower, you know, women's physique, fitness, there's more drug use going on there than people want to admit. We, Absolutely. We, we want to pretend that it's not being done anymore. But what's not being done anymore are the high doses of heavy androgens. They, if, if people think these, the, the, the top female figure athletes or female women's physique athletes are not using a little something, I don't know, there's a muscular hardness, there's a definition, there's, there's, uh, there's more to that than just enough protein. Um, Absolutely. And, and you know, it's interesting, too, because the role of drugs, especially in those kinds of populations, the, the fitness and figure, they've actually changed. Once upon a time, you know, anabolics were used largely to build muscle and augment the physique. In today's world, they're largely used to just perpetuate staggering volumes of training for this obscene volume of cardio and these you know, ridiculously high set workouts. So it, it's actually almost become a job necessity predicated on the job, not really the goal. Right. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, so, so let's say you've got, you know, a natural female who decides that she wants to become supernatural. And mm -hmm. actually that's, I think I told you this, this is just one of my favorite stories ever. This is a guy I knew years ago, bodybuilding gym. And he was, you know, he was just, he talked about it. Nobody cared. And I asked him one time, I'm like, why, why did you decide to switch from being natural? He goes, you know, I was, I was 195. I was a top, you know, I was just under the not quite super heavyweight. It's a top natural guy. And I hit my limits and I decided that I wanted to be supernatural. And I just thought that was the best answer because, you know, it's like, I, I wanted to be better than natural. I'm like, okay. So you have a woman who's been natural. She's been training. She's got the background. She wants to do her first cycle, mm -hmm. right? Now for a male, we might say, you know, low dose of testosterone, enanthate, or, you know, mm -hmm. she doesn't want to do needles, whatever he can do, whatever, or what would be a good safe first choice for her? Well, be before we talk about compound, I want to say that also, like I consider men, I think it's a, a relatively prescriptive formula. And I think that formula is somewhere between one and three milligrams per kilogram. One, of course, being the beginner, three being a pretty significant dose. And that's one to three milligrams per kilogram weekly. So, okay. you know, you have, you have a 60, 65 kilogram woman, which is you know, kind of where, where that, you know, population sits, you know, drug-free, good athlete, females, probably about that size. Um, that is something, you know, well south of 100 milligrams per week. It's pretty small. Yes, and um, with one milligram per kilo, that's, we'll call it 60 milligrams. That's, you know, yeah. you started with that. You mentioned that 10 milligram dose. Yep. That's 10 milligrams a day. That's Absolutely. Okay. And and that is a, an agency. In comparative terms, that has orders of magnitude greater influence on a female than it would on a male. That is a pretty significant starting dose, but it, it is uh, very workable. It's practical based on the products that are out there, the formats in which they come, 10 milligram tablets, et cetera. Um, so I would even suggest now, be, you know, again, considering that one milligram per kilogram is kind of my target dose i would actually suggest they start at half of that and escalate up to it maybe even slightly beyond it with an average dosing over the course of the four six eight ten weeks that they do that with an average dosing of one milligram per kilogram so that's kind of where where we would look like in terms of the the dosage the next thing even before drug would be i would talk about duration and here's the gig with duration 
The longer you take these drugs, the better they work. The longer you take these drugs, the more ingrained the, the negatives become. Right. That is, there's just no way around that. It doesn't matter what magic compound you talk about. The end of the day, the longer you take it, the more permanent the negative effects are going to be. However, also more, the more permanent the results will be. Yeah. That's the end of the story. So that is purely a self-assessment risk to benefit ratio. You need to understand this. You, I'm speaking to the female athlete. You need to understand roughly what that means, what that looks like, the consequences, and then weigh that against the benefits you want. That is, that is the answer there. Uh, I can offer some guidelines, and I would say that any cycle less than four weeks is probably simply not long enough to actually do anything, and any cycle above about 12 weeks is almost certainly going to get you into the problematic zone. Okay. That gives you a range, a window, um, and, and that's about what I can offer there. Yeah, it seems like whatever, and you know, realize most of, most of what I'm familiar with comes from, you know, reading all the various books, and I actually have the original underground steroid handbook somebody sent me, which is one of my prized possessions. But Absolutely. You know, like, like the World Anabolic Review, which was that, that really tedious German text from the 90s, <laughs> and, you know, and they seem to be right on par with what you're saying, that for most women, six to eight weeks is enough to get some good gains to, yes. avoid, you know, that, that's... That that's the avoids the major side effects. Although yes. that does raise something I've discussed with with someone else I know in the field. You know, I guess the question is like we tend to think in terms of all right, you take this drug, boom, eight weeks later you've got side effects. Clearly, that's not how this works. Absolutely not. Like, and we've talked about this similar context in terms of muscle growth, right? We train, we train, we we train, we train, we train. Then boom, eight weeks later you've gotten bigger. Obviously, from day. Overnight, you didn't gain muscle. It's a matter of these tiny, non-measurable, incremental gains. Are the side effects in women occurring similarly, right? So, like, let's say a woman's going to gain a milliliter on her clitoris over eight weeks, whatever it is. Let's call it 0.8 millimeters just to make the math simpler. It's not like she gains 0.8 overnight. Is she gaining 0.1 millimeter that's too tiny to measure roughly per week? Is there, a, I mean, I realize it's kind of speculative, but uh, it, it, it's, it's actually less speculative than you think. I, I don't want to say I track these things like I'm running around with a ruler, but I mean, these are the sorts of questions that I ask athletes. These are the sorts of things that I have investigated okay. and the changes in all of these categories, thinning of hair, skin changes, you know, girl part changes all seem to work kind of on a quantum level. There no changes, no changes, Boom, I see a change. No okay. change, no change, no change. Boom, I see a change. So it does seem to work in somehow in quantas or flights or thresholds. Um, and that also plays very deeply into the, if it is kind of a threshold or, or you know, somehow quantified units, then duration becomes the evil. If, it, if it's progressing in distinct groups, the way you stop that is you 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 truncate the the duration, so there's there's definitely that. Okay. However, also with the concept of side effects, uh, it very much depends on which one you're talking about. The behavioral changes come on almost instantly, okay. literally. You know, with an oral drug, they 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 work super quick. With an oral okay. drug, you three days later, you know that person that that yeah. it's on, that's happening. Um, <laughs> So each side effect does to some degree have its own uh, time frame, time scale, but there does also seem to be these distinct delinations and flights in the, in the changes. Okay. 
Yeah. Um, going back to dose for a second. Yep. So you mentioned one to three milligrams per kilo per week as kind of a yep. rough. It as sort of a, I guess a you know a rough rule of thumb, right? So if women make on average one, you know, uh, have one tenth to one thirtieth, so you know they make one tenth to one third as much testosterone. If you find a dose for a male, is it really just as simple as divide by ten to thirty? <sighs> Well, I think the actual I think the actual answer you're looking for there is in fact yes. However, I can tell you very specifically for practical application. I know you know I'm not going to throw anyone under the bus or anything of that nature, but I know what people that have gone to the Olympics. I know what people have gone to the CrossFit Games. I know what dosings they're taking, and women never need to escalate to the same milligram per kilogram ratio that men do. It just never happens. Well, sure, but I'm saying so. Like, for example. You've got, you know, that, that one the classic study by Basin, and he gave men escalating doses of testosterone. It was, what, yep. 5,600, yep. he called super physiological, and most guys today call being natural. But yeah, agreed. That's, right, that's neither here nor there. And 600 milligrams per week for 20 weeks had just staggering 10 kilos of lean body mass yep. and drank out the ass and all this other stuff. Mm -hmm. Then I think I sent you this paper on postmenopausal women that essentially was an identical paper. And mm -hmm. doses range from like half a milligram to 25 milligrams per week. And they were giving them injectable testosterone, which, you know, to your point, you wouldn't typically do, but it was one mm -hmm. shot, whatever. And this is again, you know, that's right about one thirtieth, right? It is. Seems like as a rule of thumb, you know, and again, we're not talking about what people are using. We know, you know, mm -hmm. both know full well that the doses being used by female athletes are way higher than that and probably what they need to be. I mean, you've got women who are easily taking their testosterone to or above the normal range um, for, for, of men, men's normal. Yes, range. yes. Yeah, readily. But it seems like when you like, I, again, I refer back to the, the World Anabolic Review, we talk about, ah, you know, a typical weekly dose for a man might be whatever, three, 200 milligrams three times a week. A woman might take, you know, 50 to 100, like that she mm -hmm. might basically, it seemed like the doses were right about one third or less. Yes. That's, that, um, that's pretty much where I would put it. Um, ignoring the issue of, you know, what com different, using different compounds and, and right. Uh, agreed. So, and, and, and coincidentally, to your point, I can say this with a pretty straight face. Most pro bodybuilders and people of that level of athletic acumen are somewhere in the approaching 30 milligrams per kilogram weekly rate range. Wow. Okay. 100 kilo guys taking three grams. Yeah, but that, that, that's, that's pretty much what that is. Gotcha. Interestingly, your Olympia caliber female physiques are taking about one gram or, le or slightly less, usually 700 to 1,000 milligrams. It scales pretty well. Okay. Um, all right. So we've got sort of some dosing stuff. So getting back to the side effects, because again, yep. I think, well, let me ask sort of a, right? People talk about, ah, Anavar, Winstrol, Primo have the lowest side effects because, I mean, obviously it's interesting that part of it is just not having the affinity for those specific tissues. Yes. Is if a woman were to take enough of a quote unquote girly drug, could she generate the same negatives? Like absolutely unquestionably. Daily, she decided to go YOLO and do 
triple that or take a male dose, which I don't know, would be what, 40 or 50 milligrams thereabouts per day. Can even a safe drug become unsafe if you take enough of it? Not only that, but seemingly, and this is where it gets weird, seemingly it, it can be even worse at, at parity dosage. Um, really? Yes, and it, may, it does not make sense. There's nothing in the research that seems to lay that out, but I am aware of a handful of women that have pushed you know, primobolin use up to you know, four or 500 milligrams a week, and it was a unmitigated disaster in every single way. Not a single blood value in their blood work made sense. I mean, everything was a train wreck. So, it, again, it speaks to that kind of concept that I mentioned. There seems to be kind of quanta or flights and it's okay up to a point and then that and then beyond that is just really bad which is it's interesting we talked about this again i think probably first podcast on this topic you know dan duchene mentioned that in terms of men which was this is audio only and i'm trying to do something (laughs) logically you would think that as you took a higher dose it would simply be kind of a a, you know a semi-linear you know more Mm -hmm more equals better. And what he found was, no, that wasn't what worked. You had to hit a certain point and it was kind of within a certain range, but then you hit this threshold and you, yep. it was a quantum jump. And he, a lot of, you know, a lot of it, you start to get into ancillaries and other drugs. He's like, yeah, dosing just doesn't work the way you'd think it would, where more equals progressively, more equals progressively more results. Within a range, it's about the same. You hit this cutoff point and when you go above, because he was basically the more money you make, the bigger you get because the more drugs yep. you can afford. Absolutely. And that like in, women, in men that, and in men that number is is about a thousand milligrams. Everything up to a thousand milligrams works really great. Everything above a thousand milligrams works marketably better. Right. So it just becomes nonlinear above a certain point. Yes. So what you're saying is that for women the side effects almost work that way. Absolutely. That is exactly what I'm saying. You've 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 made it considerably more concise than I did, but yes. Yeah. Um it, it, it is absolutely the case. Um, so, again, one of the biggest you know controlling factors, you know, keeping the dose within a workable range, and then the major factor you have control of is duration. Is as you progress in time, that curve escalates also. So, that, before I want to come back to that next, but here's a very speculative question. So you just okay. basically said that that a higher dose of a safer compound can almost be worse. For a yes. woman, for a man. Yes. Can can a larger dose of a quote unquote safer compound for a woman be worse than a lower dose of a quote unquote yes worse cost? So like, is this yes. a situation where forty milligrams of Anivar, like four times what she should be taking, could be more damaging than a low dose of a straight injectable testosterone? Unquestionable. It's not. It's. I wouldn't. It's not even a question. Yes. I have seen, I have seen absolutely unquestionably, I'm aware of this. I have seen women take 50 milligrams a week of testosterone and there's definite changes. There's definite improvements in, you know, skewing of everything. And I have seen women take 40, 50 milligrams a day of Anivar and generate far worse side effects. Interesting. Yes. Any thoughts on why? Um, again, I think it's partly that threshold thing. It's also, there's also, again, and, and you're, again, you're probably more affluent with this than I, but I don't believe that everybody based on genetic 
predisposition, you know, race is probably a big driver. Uh, I don't believe everyone breaks testosterone down to the same volume of metabolites in the same ratios. And it does seem, for instance, again, I don't know who, who yeah. the, who's listening out there, but it does seem that Asian women can tolerate androgens in, in a ways that, that Caucasian people and, and black women simply cannot. I have seen Asian women taking pretty big doses and I'm looking at them, you know, as, as, quote, casually as possible, trying to find it. I'm like, I, I don't see it. Where is it? What's going on? Then the other side of the, then the, other side of the coin, um, you know, you, you, you take, uh, you know, somebody with very, quote, cracker white genetics, you take some little, you know, Irish English female, and you'd one milligram, and you're like, wow, there it is. Fuck, they're taking it. <laughs> huh, interesting. Okay. Um, so, so on that, you know, and something I don't think we've really addressed in terms of like, you know, injectables versus orals and don't need to get so much, in, you know, we've got, we've got half lives, we've got, yeah. you know, uh, dosing levels of very, you know, if you take an injection of, say, testosterone and in fate, you get a pretty big spike, but you know, what is it, seven day half life? Yeah. You know, not like it's clearing, whereas if you're taking an oral, it's maybe three or four hours. Yeah. As far as the side effects and you know, you talked about the dosing duration. Usually what you see, you know, mentioned is, ah, it's the buildup, it's the chronic buildup of androgens, right? It's Correct. Not, not the acute effect. It's the yeah. fact that you're maintaining this elevated androgen testosterone level of whatever it is about women's, about relative to a woman's normal level. Not so much that you're elevating it, but you're maintaining it at that Absolutely. Level. Unquestionably, yes. So- and- and that is actually the reason why uh, women should probably steer clear of the longer acting compounds is because that buildup can sneak in there and be fairly unquantified. And you, you know, you're, yeah, you're only taking a 50 milligram weekly dosage, but when you consider the overlap and all of the esters, you, you find out you've actually, you've gone up to three or four times the plasma levels you intended. Right. Well, again, you know, when, when the war talks about, you know, they basically say, A, women probably shouldn't use testosterone, and if they use, you know, should pro- propionate or at least one of the short-acting esters. But Agreed. Do, the big key is to use a much long, uh, longer duration between injections. Agreed. So, a guy might be doing two testosterone injections every third or fourth day to deliberately maintain stable levels. A yes. woman should be deliberately not maintaining stable level. She should That's take a, a test prop every once a week. So you're going to get a spike. It's going to be big for a couple of days, but then it's coming back to a pretty low level before the next shot. Yeah, um, actually, quite honestly, one of the one of the most uh, effective quote cycles. I hate that word that I'm aware of uh, would be a six week cycle that is literally just three two week injections of nandrolone. Oh, so just one shot every second week. Correct. Or every two weeks, rather. Yeah. So you're going to be elevating levels for however much of a time. Um, is it possible, okay, so let's assume for the most part women are going to be focusing on orals more so Agreed. long-acting esters. Does this have implication for dosing patterns, either within a day, within a week? Is it? I guess the question is, is there a way for women to get – most of the benefits of anabolics while minimizing, like, again, to your point, if you want the benefits, you got to pay the piper. Like, you know, don't, that's just kind of, that's what sucks. If you want the benefits, yep. you've got to take the sides. 
but if you want to get the most benefits while minimizing side effects, and here we'll focus on orals, is there a superior dosing pattern? There is, and it, it amounts to um, quote or rotations. What I, what I have found um, interesting, it goes back to like the Ben Johnson debacle and all that, obviously wasn't a female, but those people were very deeply ingrained in the track and field, and all of this information seems to come mostly from the track and field world, and that is three to four week escalations from a low dose to a moderate dose. Okay. And then three to four weeks off. So it's okay. this sawtoothed, and it matched very nicely with the periodization of their training volumes and their training escalations. And so you had these, you know, three weeks of rapid progress, three weeks of, you know, two weeks of reset, you know, a week of kind of nothing, and then three weeks of escalation. And it seems that if you average the area under curve, the progress is pretty good, and the side effects are pretty minimal. It seems to be the best arrangement overall. I don't know. I'm sure you've you've read, you know, that that paper that came out, kind of detailing, you know, the GDR. Uh, Absolutely. Did, and they actually show a couple of, and it was used exactly like that. Like, and this is mm -hmm. something, you know, we could go, we could talk about this for hours. The fact that periodization was built around matching the, the whole three on one off. I got news for you. That was so they could mm -hmm. take drugs for three weeks and bury them in volume and then go off and recover for a week. Absolutely. Heavy androgens when volume was high, they cut volume and went to intensity when they had to pass the drug tests. Like periodization <laughs> came out of practical issues and drug scheduling. I have said that since, since yeah. ever I've known. Yeah. And I believe, I think what I've read about oral terinobol, which was the, big <laughs> drug, right? The magic, the magic OT was supposedly if you went, the week you went off, your testosterone would actually rebound to higher levels. So they would like use basically a three a three on one off type of cycle, mm -hmm. very in volume when they're on, but then cut to get that super compensation or whatever it is. But you're getting a weird rebound effect where testosterone goes even higher. Yep, which is bizarre in its own way. But it's like that sort of you know, and and I know you know if you read Speed Trap. A, he was alternating like five milligrams and 10 milligrams of Dianabol, even for the yes. men. He was using baby doses. Yes. Um, in, in a very, you know, in, in, in the broad sense of things, but he was very much sequencing it with the training load. Absolutely. Um, avoid using Escalade. And of course, with track and field, you have the issue of if you start holding water and you're heavier, talked about Ben Johnson would use Winstrol, but he would get stiff. That's not, you know, bodybuilders don't give a shit. Um, right not performance-based, but for athletes, you do have these, these other considerations. Yeah, yeah especially um, throwing athletes, proprioception is everything. Body awareness and knowing where they're at and the rotations, yeah. and it's, it's enormous. So for those big jumps in body weight from holding at, kilos of water. Exactly. Absolutely. So to, to, to get back to the point of your right. pattern is there's definitely, uh, definitely efficacy to short, and I know I said earlier, you know, like a course less than four weeks is probably pointless. I mean in its entirety. Okay. For instance, you know, three weeks up, one week off, three weeks up, one week off. That's you know, more than four weeks in its entirety yeah. from beginning to end, even though it's not four weeks directly linearly. So I, I have to okay. you know, be, be careful what I say there because people love to like send me hate mail and be like, oh, but you said, and I'm like, yeah, but you didn't listen to the bit before and after. So I just want to take a moment to really say that. Okay. Uh, 
I have, I have actually even coached people that have literally done three weeks on three weeks off with very good effect. Okay. So, and is that, I presume with that, you're modifying, you know, the training where you're pretty much hitting them hard for three weeks to kind of sync with the improved recovery. Like, I don't know if you're, you know, accumulation, intensification, volume, intent, whatever you want to look at. Yep. I'm assuming that that's structured along with uh, the training program. Yeah, and interestingly, it's actually offset by a week because the, okay. effect, the, the effects of the drugs actually tend to lag about one week behind the dosing. Okay. So, so you, you start the drug, and then the actual radical escalation in training effects is the next week. Got and then, then you're off, but you're still training like you're on for one more week. One more so it's, it's also three-week escalations, but it's offset by one week. Gotcha. That makes sense. So, so that's within, all right. So when we can training, you know, we typically can look at it like fractal pattern, right? We go from big to small and it's kind of the same things. So you mentioned that with dosing to, you know, the benefits with avoiding the negatives, we can sort of use, uh, you know, several weeks on several weeks off to limit a chronic mm -hmm. elevation of androgens. Can we further accentuate that during the week is alternating doses daily is, like we know that the half-life of your typical oral is what, three to four hours, right? And for men to take that into account, you split dose. Men Agreed. want to maintain these elevated levels. Women, in a sense, will want to avoid them. For a woman, is it better to take, you know, let's say she's going to take 60 milligrams a week. Rather than 10 a day, which is going to keep an elevated level, all day, would she better be going 20 milligrams every other day? Um, I don't know if that's the better thing, but what might be – uh, applicable and I do definitely do know is going on let's say in the CrossFit world where the uh, there's kind of a baseline dose like it's consistently 10 milligrams a day and then spikes of dosing okay. proximal to particular workouts right which again I think essentially if you look at what Charlie Francis is doing his guys were doing max speed work Monday Wednesday Friday where they needed the biggest boost they were doing lower intensity the other three days and I think that's where his sort of stair step yep program. exactly so there, there is but I, I think at that point I think there's you know talking about going from the macro down to the micro there is a point where it just gets unworkable and, and, and problematic so I think you know like I said limiting the actual you know duration of the, the individual blocks is probably more where your efficacy is trying to juggle it on a daily level I'm not saying it isn't doesn't happen I'm not even saying that I haven't tried to do it but my point is is I, th I think it's probably the lesser of your values the, the, okay. The middle of the micro to macro scale is probably where sweet spot is. Okay. Does it make more sense? Well, I guess if the pills come in 10 milligrams anyway, you're not splitting the dose. But does it make more sense for women to simply dose an oral once a day, whereas yes. a guy might deliberately want to? So she's going to get, you know, a four to six hour elevation. Yes. Probably around training, whatever. And then she deliberately wants that to dissipate before yes. the day or whatever it is. And interestingly, I would point out, and this is completely contrary to what everyone else would suggest and, and seemingly believe, is that, you know, um, it's actually in even in men's bodybuilding, it's super common now to take your, you know, anabolics right before training for that boost, for that, right. you know, for, but the reality is I don't think you want a training boost. You want a recovery boost. Recovery is after training, not right. during training. So, Again, a little food for thought there, folks. If you're taking drugs to accentuate your recovery, you might want to take them proximal to your fucking recovery. Just 
Throw that up. I can kind of see it, you know, if we, all right, you train and then whatever, within an hour proteins, like I can, I can see a semi-logic of wanting it in your system afterwards. And I don't know, I, I, I half wonder sometimes I've, I've got a, a good friend that I've talked to about this and kind of like with the periodization thing, he's of the opinion and what little I know, I seem to, to agree that a lot of the obsessive compulsive bodybuilding bullshit came out of psychosis about trying to sync with the drugs. Absolutely. Um, okay. Taking this drug, protein synthesis up. So I need protein here. I need to train here. I need another meal here. And here's my carb. I mean, we know you do that obviously with insulin and carbs and things of mm -hmm. that nature. But it's, you know, he even told me once he goes, dude, you want to know why you see all these photo shoots of guys doing curls with straps on? Because mm -hmm. the pump from the orals makes it impossible to hold the fucking weights. Absolutely. So much, you yep. can't, you know, I, I suspect a lot of what bodybuilders have done as far as their sequencing of training or whatever came directly out of trying to organize it around the drugs, not the other way around. Well, I wouldn't even say trying. I would say to some degree ma mandated by you know, again, you know, like, like swallowing the, you know, orals before the workouts and then the, with the implementation of insulin, a lot of their diet and training strategies just simply have to be the way they are or they would die. Right. Yes. <laughs> well, here's, this is another, this is a topic for another day. And how did I put this? I think at one point I had this dumbass speculation that was it, I can't, which way did I go? I think I decided that in a sense, drug users needed to be more meticulous about their training nutrition than naturals because for naturals it just doesn't make three-fifths of a shit's difference because you're going to suck no matter it's like training protein synthesis is going to be elevated and whatever but it, like bodybuilders almost had to eat every three hours because of the drug pharmacokinetics whereas mm -hmm. for naturals it's just like whatever every three to five hours eat a little bit bigger meal less frequently you can eat more frequently. It kind of averages out in the end. Like I almost wonder if drug users, as much as we give drugs magic effects, doesn't necessitate them being more meticulous in a sense. And also less at the same way. Like we also know drugs can cover up a lot for a lot of mistakes. A lot of bad training practices. Yeah. Different, yeah. Different, whatever. Different topic for a different day. We've got. Okay. That's just my so, random thought process. Okay. So for women. All right. So you mentioned. We want to keep the, the overall drug use cycle somewhere between, say, four and 12 weeks. Whatever. Agreed. Let's call it eight. Now, you just said that you might break that up into three on, three off. Mm -hmm. Are we only counting the on weeks for the total cycle? No. I, from beginning to end, that is the duration. So that it would be you know, three on, one off, three on. That's a, quote, seven-week cycle, okay. assuming yeah. it's all oral. If there was something injectable, you would have to consider the – trail off the half-life decay you know for instance okay and and most people don't do that i don't know how many times i've had somebody come to me and say oh i've been off drugs for two weeks and i'm like no you haven't you've just about that in terms of pct in exactly, podcasts, it, how exactly. You know, the week you stop taking injectables it's about four more until yeah. actually it's cleared your system and you can even start thinking about recovering now what i would point out with the whole idea one of the one of the bonus efficacies of these kind of three or four week escalations and then a, a stop and then an escalation is you're not married to a single compound at that point. Literally a female could do three weeks of Anivar, a week off, and then three weeks of Primobol and acetate and then, a, uh, and then a period off and then three weeks of, you know, stenozolol. And okay. 
the beauty of that is many fold. One, you don't get breakdowns in enzymatic pathways and you potentially don't have slowdowns in growth and efficacy. Secondly, you also have the ability to test, stick a toe in, the, in every pond and find problem spots and potentially find sweet spots. Okay. Some people just simply respond better to a given drug than another. Um, you know, again, by and large, Primabol and Amasteron are goddamn near the same drug, yet I respond infinitely better to yeah. one than the other. It's just the way, it's just the way it works. So yeah. it gives them the opportunity to split up the potential you know, risk factors and also, like I said, find problems okay. with, with limited duration associated with them. So that brings up kind of, let's go back first. So you mentioned as far as like an injectable cycle. We talked about yes. ideally avoiding these chronic buildups. Yes. Like kind of two ways to go about it. You could use a relatively longer acting compound very infrequently. Agreed. I believe you mentioned, did you say was it nandrolone or? Yeah. Or, you know, I, you could use, say, a very short acting test prop, something that's very oh. quick in and out. Nandrolone phenylpropanate would be right. a choice. And still probably, you know, what, once a week or once every fifth day or what have you. Agreed. Is, let's say a woman wants to just go balls to the wall. She's like, fuck it, I want to use testosterone, and and they, and it is interesting, this study on postmenopausal women that I'll keep coming back to, mm -hmm. they actually use that. Mm -hmm. yeah, at 20, but 25 milligrams was the maximum dose, which is again about one thirtieth of what they were using. Mm -hmm. in there. And actually over 20 weeks, they saw literally zero side effects. I think I sent you the paper. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the biggest one, there was one woman who reported that her sex drive improved as a negative, and I'm guessing her man couldn't keep up. Um, they needed to give him 50 milligrams of Viagra and get yeah, it in the program. But by and large, that very small dose and i do find it interesting that it was once a week dosing because they just want them to come into the lab give him a shot see him in a week yep do you think that in that specific case and they did they saw testosterone went to 211 nanograms as a peak which is below the normal range for men but about triple or more the average range for women is it simply the fact that the dosing was so infrequent that they avoided the negatives um, and also probably that the absolute dose was under a given threshold. Right. Um, and secondarily, and this is another thing too, is again, talking about this, and this is why it's so hard to make these conversations about women, is women also don't respond the same to androgens at every stage in their life. You That's give true. androgens to a teenager, you're going to get entirely different results than you give them to a 60-year-old woman. So right. these women were already, you know, parried to postmenopausal. That did mean the environment was slightly different. That scenario you just laid out might have looked slightly different if these women were in their 20s. Sure, and there's, you know, and it's, it's just for listeners, you know, this is, obviously they can't, and this is a problem, you can't ethically study the use of anabolic steroids in young female athletes like you can. Right. The GDR, well, we might not call it ethical, but they certainly, <laughs> right. certainly have the data. This is, you know, there's a, there's a big push on testosterone replacement for postmenopausal women. Yes. In the literature, it's not really, it's funny, it's, or not funny, it's, it's, it's frustrating. It hasn't really made it to the general practitioner stage because to a classically trained MD, giving women testosterone 
what? It's this weird, like, why would I give women a male hormone? It's like, well, because it's involved in their general health, overall well-being, sex drive, libido. Like, no, you don't want to jack in a ton. But that, and that's what the study was certainly looking right. at. And, you know, women, and I, I believe they gave them a drug that basically took testosterone to zero. Like, they wanted to do dose right. response. And at the baby doses, it was very, very, you know, I actually have some friends, two female friends that are going through um, menopause and they're, they've got the pellets and they're like, yeah, it's, it's night and day. Like it's, it's just the, the quality of life um, is, is enormous in that, but that's clinical to your point more than mm-hmm. athletic. I do believe mm-hmm. we gained a couple, three pounds of muscle, which is great. Yes standpoint of aging and sarcopenia and all this other stuff in the um, absence of exercise again that's an enormous again people just don't scale that in the absence of exercise the accumulation of even one kilogram of muscle is goddamn important and relevant well we talked about this a, a, a couple different times you know to, that you've made the point that most anabolics not most anabolics all anabolics can maybe not oral terenobol but they were developed for medical purposes right yep. anabar was they, they wanted a non-androgenic drug for uh osteoporosis like they wanted Absolutely. these were for medical uses and we we kind of have lost sight of that because they absolutely by athletes but there is a push from a health standpoint for for postmenopausal women and it's going to take a generation of it's going to take a new generation of doctors coming up that are being presented well, literature co- coincidentally i think much like the uh, kind of like the marijuana thing i think this uh, CrossFit craze that we're living through now where these people are experimenting with this stuff when these you know 20-somethings are 50-something they're going to remember hey that wasn't that bad it's yeah. okay and I think that's going to be the thing that moves the uh, the generational gap forward yeah so, I agree um, I'd only know just I know we're not here to talk about postmenopausal women and hormone replacement but I talk about this actually in in, in my women's book there's an a really interesting hypothesis I came across by a researcher, right? Because one thing we haven't really touched on, you know, is testosterone conversion to estrogen. Yes. Which again, for men is typically seen as a negative, although that's absolutely perfect. excessive estrogen is a problem. But as men found out in the 70s and 80s, anti-estrogens make steroids not work. Um, yep. You need some estrogen signaling for opt- and and I, I honestly here's my my speculation. I think we will find that a lot of the benefits of testosterone during dieting and other, are actually via estrogen. Like we know that estrogen given to men increases fat oxidation, decreases protein oxidation. I suspect a lot of the benefits of testosterone during uh, contest prep is actually via estrogen, but neither here nor there. But there's a problem, there's a concern with postmenopausal women and estrogen replacement and hormone replacement therapy, the potential increased breast cancer risk. Yeah. And that's a whole separate thing. The early d- data from the, uh, the, the nurses study has been reparsed. It now looks like women who go on hormone replacement early for limited periods don't have a risk, but women who go on much later for longer periods do of, re- of breast cancer. But what my point was, <clears throat> one researcher pointed out that testosterone in women converts to estrogen, obviously. However, breast cells don't contain aromatase. Yep. And his point was by giving women who are at high risk of breast cancer, right? Maybe the BRCA mutation, whatever, mm-hmm. familial history, by giving them testosterone only, you could get not only the benefits of testosterone, the benefits of estrogen, but the absence of estrogenic signaling in breast tissue and avoid breast cancer risk. And that's yes. goddamn fascinating. 
plus the absolute reduction in total breast mass and therefore less potential for genesis of, of cancerous tissue. And this hasn't been tested to my knowledge, but I just thought that that was such a fascinating thought that testosterone alone in women might even be safer. Yep. Traditional hormone replacement, especially for women at, at, at high breast cancer risk. And then you, again, when you start to couple in the, the impacts on, you know, you, everything. everything else, yeah. it becomes exceedingly, uh, you know, interesting and, and, and something to look at. Um, now, what I I don't know how much more you wanted to cover, and I don't know where you what you were thinking, but I do have something I want to inter, interject into this whole thing, and I know the conversation is steroids and you know yeah. AAS for women, and but when I coach women, and I do, the number one thing I bring up over and over is trying to find non-steroidal methods of maintaining steroid progress for instance that idea of you know, kind of short three or four week escalations and then three or four weeks off the three or four weeks off i don't think they're just off free for all just oh just go have pizza and fuck off that might be a great opportunity to introduce a non-steroidal performance enhancing compound to fill the gap and maintain a total elevation above baseline right. but not driven by androgens well, actually, let's, it's funny because that's kind of the, I think, another topic that I wanted to address that will lead into that. It's okay. So a common trend among men, right? So back in the day, you went on, you came off, your life sucked. They spent years worrying about, you know, post-cycle therapy. Yeah. And now it seems like the modern approach to post-cycle therapy is just don't come off, ever. Yep. You just simply adjust your doses, right? Yep. And so we've got the concept of a blast and a cruise. Right. Yep. People use that terminology. You can use it for training, but we'll use it, you know, so you might take during a blast cycle as a male, whatever, five to 600 milligrams of testosterone base, you might add an or like whatever you're going to do. You're looking at a high super physiological dose, pushing your training diet, pushing for progress between and that might be an eight to 12 week cycle. Now mm -hmm. to give your body a break, both from a physical and a health standpoint, we cut back and maybe you go to a hormone, a TRT dose, 200 milligrams, exactly. right? Maybe 600 on, blast 200 milligrams, you stay there for 12 weeks, you're gonna maintain, right? Of course, people mm -hmm. will go, oh my God, that's, that's nothing, right? But it's still gonna keep your levels high average, if not higher, you're yeah, not cratering to zero as the traditional PCT model. You do mm -hmm. that for 12 weeks and you just alternate, right? And yes. basically you build up and then you stabilize and you build up over a long cycle. Is there, Working just from the just from androgens, no matter how you whatever compound, is there any effective way, safe way, for a woman to apply that? No, there just is not. Duration yeah. is the duration is the evil. The longer they take the drugs, the more and more permanent their side effects become. End of story. Okay, that was easy enough. So, it, it, with, that back, so with that background. That leads into what you were going to discuss anyway. Right. And then that's the concept. If the, if, the, if the key concept is total duration of drugs, total drugs over time is the issue, the goal here is to minimize that. And so I can easily see a scenario where you do, let's just make it round numbers. Let's say four weeks. You're going to do four weeks of Anivar at an average dosing of 20 milligrams a day. At the end of that, instead of just, you know, throwing you know just oh okay i'm no, no drugs now and i'm stuck 
the idea would be then to fill that next four to six week gap before beginning again with and maybe not equal, but as much of an anabolic stimulus or signaling as possible from a different mechanism. And different mechanisms might be, again, it's long forgotten clenbuterol is in fact anabolic and particularly, particularly so in women, I might add. So that might be, that might be a great place to apply, you know, something like that. It might be a great place to apply insulin, growth hormone, any of the many secretagogues. And these things could be rotated, you know, applied strategically based on what overall training patterns look like, overall progress, where you are in a year versus competing and that sort of thing. But my point is, is that especially in women who are so sensitive to hypertrophy and capable of making progress with fairly nominal signaling, literally, as we talked about, one thirtieth the amount of signaling, there are lots of vectors out there that can generate icrogenesic effects that are not steroids. Okay. And that's where I think women have really been done in disservice is, you know, that's just that, you know, anabolics have been condensed to this idea that it's, you know, anabar, winstrol, primbrol, and, that, and that's it. And that's not true. Women can make significant muscle gains with clenbuterol, with insulin. Fuck, even creatine monohydrate can have significant impacts on, you know, female performance. Right. Why not strategically apply these things? Gotcha. So, so that's the thing is interestingly, you know, you talked about, you know, the enhanced versus unenhanced, who has to be more sophisticated about their use. The reality is the unfortunate crowd is women. Women simply must be much more sophisticated and okay. cognizant about all of the many options available and all of the many vectors and then arrange them to their greatest potential and minimal negative impact. And unfortunately, it requires a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of strategy, but it can be done. Which, I, which actually brings it, makes me, brings up something I hadn't even thought to address, but I think we touched on our previous podcast is, you know, everyone's got a big heart on for SARMs, the selective <laughs> modulators. And I believe you had said fairly simply last time that for the recreational lifter who wants to gain a few pounds, they're fine. They're not, you know, for, for a male anyway, the, the effects just aren't that enormous. Yep. They're not that beneficial. But again, we're now dealing with a different physiology. Yep. Are arms a potential for women or a, do they have greater potential for women than men? Absolutely. Again, to be fair, they're never going to equal in effect anabolic steroids. But they may not bring the same level of consequences. So it could be a scenario where you use steroids for a period of time and then growth hormone and insulin for a period of time, then SARMs for a period of time, then growth hormone and insulin, then steroids. And if you actually map that out, your total steroid dosage over time is significantly reduced on a year-long level. Okay. On, a, on a bookkeeping ledger type level, your total yearly usage is lower and therefore the total yearly consequences are lower. SARMs do in fact have some androgenic consequences, but not on a, a it's not even fair to say milligram to milligram basis because they don't really scale in milligrams, but in an effective dose to effective dose comparison, SARMs do bring less masculinization. Gotcha. Okay. Well, that was a good, a quick answer. Um, I can't, I, we've actually covered, I think, a significant amount of what I think most would, would there's one topic, we talked about this on the phone casually the other day, <laughs> right? 
you probably know where I'm going with this, so, right? Again, the typical advice is women stick with, you know, Primo, Winstrol, Anavar, you know, the girly steroids, which, as Dan Duchesne wrote in the best article he ever wrote, in my opinion, Death Wish Dieting, he wrote, are expensive, usually fake, and just shitty anabolics. Yep. Is there, ignoring injectables, which come with their, you know, just the, the it seems like other than maybe test prop once a week or something, you know, once every two week dosing, injectables just seem like a losing battle unless a woman simply doesn't really give a shit about the negatives. Like if she's willing to just use baby doses or just doesn't care, is there ever a time for a woman to select a heavy androgen? So for example, hypothetically, Anadrol 50, which is usually held up as the most anabolic oral steroid available with the most androgenic sides that everybody's afraid of, even though it's been used in HIV patients. Yep. Is there and anemia and anemia? It was yeah. prescribable in the U S for anemia. Um, well, actually well, a reason for a woman to just go, you know, fuck the expensive weak stuff. Just take anadrol. Well, I'm, I'm going to say a whole bunch of things here that, that are, that are a, a bunch of things. Okay. Um, going back to what I said about nandrolone, how it has some progestational effects and what have you, so does Anadrol. And I think Dan was definitely onto something when he pointed out that a very low dose, for instance, if a 10 milligram tablet of Anadrol ex existed, Right, and it, it doesn't, to my knowledge. But if somebody out there with an underground lab that wants to produce one, this might be their avenue. Right. For instance, a ten milligram tablet of Anadrol would bring as much or more anabolic signaling than, say, Winstrol or Primabolin. It you would bring milligram per milligram. Yes, in a milligram per milligram basis, it would bring more signaling, and it brings that bit of progesterone and prolactin stimulation through mechanisms we really truly don't fully understand, but we're pretty confident they are there. And those are quasi feministic characteristics. Okay. So you're talking about a highly anabolic drug that has a built in feminine buffer. And honestly, I, I, I hate to say it out loud because it seems like such kind of frightening advice, but honestly, I really think that that's probably the best scenario in all of this. Again, for short durations, right. for very specific purposes, at low dosage, I did, you know, 10 milligrams. Right. But I really, really think that that is a really positive thing. And I think it's funny that, you know, Dan spouted that off literally, what is it now, getting on to 40 fucking years ago? Something like that, yeah. Yeah, that's... Because in that article, and most... Most listeners probably aren't old enough to remember the newsletter to have, have ever seen it, but he basically describes taking a very overfat female competitor. He is, it was one of the early DNP experiments, and yep. he said, I want her to protect her muscle mass, and she was on all the moral choices, and he said, nope, 50 milligrams of Anadrol, one pill a day. He said, it's all a woman needs to get big and strong. It's all she needs for dieting, and it's easier to control the end. And I yep. know, I, I believe Bill Roberts uh, has sort of taken up the, the the call on that was sort of supporting those ideas. I, I seem to yep. recall he wrote about that. Um, and, you know, I imagine even 25 milligrams, even a half a pill would be profound enough for any woman short of super heavyweight 
powerlifting? Um, I'm quite honestly, like I said, I, I think I would be very comfortable saying 10. I think 10 would be a very significant dose uh, and very effective and probably no more problematic than a commensurate dose of the, you know, accepted choices. I, I really do believe that. Um, again, the problem with that is one of the problems men would see is you, you definitely can't fake it. You're going to look like you're taking that drug because you're going to get that, you know, that gestational facial fullness and, you know, possibly even swelling of fingers and what have you. And some women just aren't comfortable with that level of advertisement. Um, but then in the same breath, they walk around with, you know, abs and, you know, striated ass cheeks and they think they can fake their way. Like, no, 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 this just happened. (laughs) It's just CrossFit. It's just CrossFit. (laughs) Right. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's its own interesting thing. Uh, agreed. So I, I, I definitely think that you know that the drug choice concept needs to be explored a little broader, uh, you know, and that sort of thing. Uh, and then again, the you know what used to be referred to as bridging, you know, going using something in between the drug, the androgen cycles. I really think that's where women will find their long-term efficacy. At the end of the day, there's no real magic with steroids. Steroids work. Steroids are problematic. The more you take, the bigger the problems. The more you take, the better they work. You know, well, that, that's yeah. pretty well understood. I think it's the 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 rest of the picture where women can really find their efficacy. What's just randomly, just because it this infuriates me because it's part of a political agenda. There's actually currently literature being written with a straight face going, do we really know that testosterone affects women's performance? And I'm like, are you <laughs> me? Just like it's just the dumbest apology. It's it's part of and, and this is a complicated topic, the whole issue of transgender and intersex athletes right and there's kind of the weird under if you read these papers there's a weird undercurrent of we want to disprove the role of testosterone in women's sports so that we don't have to make cutoff like the ioc and the ncaa right. we don't want to have to draw these lines in the sand and say that castor semenya can or cannot like but it's it's reaching a point that is so ludicrous that it just makes me want to cry yeah or laugh or smack somebody like this is such a dumb question like yeah. we might question its effects within the normal range but by the time you've got you know a woman that has testosterone of 10 animals per liter which is the low male range i'm sorry she now has seven times or whatever 10 times a woman's normal level and you're gonna say uh we're not really sure if this helps like yeah. oh boy. but anyway Yes. Uh, that's, that's, you know, well, I, I mean, I face again, you know, being as old as I am, I faced that same thing being, you know, kind of the child prodigy. I remember being, you know, in junior high school and high school and teachers and counselors and people with very straight face, but sincerity saying there's really no evidence that steroids improve performance. And then the school bus would drop me off at the gym and I would walk in the door and there were these just enormous, just fucking bovine humans. And they were all very open and then they're like, steroids made me like this. And I'm like, there seems to be a disconnect in the rhetoric here. Yeah. And some of that, I mean, that the early research was so badly done and, and that just became the party line, which is why nobody trusts doctors anymore. But I mean, now the literature is so, you know, the basin study just like, that's it. Builds muscle, don't even have to train, or you can train like an idiot. Yep. 10 kilos in a year, more than natural will gain, doing everything right. Um, I want to go back to something you touched on early on. So you mentioned that women more so than men seem to maintain those muscle mass gains. Yes. For extended periods. Does even that have implications? Like, let's say a woman Absolutely. 
10-week cycle, whether she breaks it up into three-on-one off or not. She's just going to do that cycle. Would a woman be better off maybe just doing one cycle a year or one cycle every six months? Because if she can maintain with at least semi-intelligent training and diet, and I realize that right now we've just assumed more than we can assume for a lot of trainees. A lot of training, you know, I actually remember Dan making this comment. He you know, goes, look, I've looked at the testosterone numbers. Female, female bodybuilders have the testosterone levels of, you know, male gymnasts, but they're not that much bigger. Clearly, they are doing something totally wrong in their diet and training. If they've got this much testosterone, they can't be bigger than this dude. They are fucking it up left, right, and center. But assuming she's training and eating fairly well, would the most logical approach be to do one cycle and then stay off for the better part of a year and just maintain that. Well, that would absolutely be the best answer. The problem is expectations just continually escalate. Um, but, But absolutely, again, I cannot reinforce this enough. It is area under curve. The more drugs you take per year, Right. The, the more negatives you're going to wear. It's just the way it works. So yes, if scenarios can be built where drug use is proximal to just competing or just away from competing, if it's a drug tested scenario, right. then that is absolutely the best option. This is not a question. Um, and something else that it probably will require an entirely separate podcast. And you and I, again, have talked about this, you know, just in casual conversation about how, you know, CrossFit is a good example, seems to not generate particularly great results for men, but yet women seem to make radical changes, and it's probably the scaling of load percentage per, yeah. you know, per gender. That also seems to apply to drug use. Um, men take steroids and get expansions in their volume capacity. They can just do ever more and more and more volume. Okay. They don't necessarily become as equally responsive to load. Women, on the other hand, seem to be probably equally, maybe even superiorly responsive to load in the presence of steroids. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's consistent, you know, with not only, like, physiologically, women generally don't fatigue as quickly, recover more quickly from volume loading. And for a number of reasons, some of it's biological, some of it's just using lower absolute loads. But Agreed. it's almost like they, they have a built-in volume tolerance to begin with. Yep. And it almost makes me wonder the kind of, the way you're describing it, whereas like men have a built-in intensity tolerance. And it's almost like what you're saying is that the drug is expanding whatever you suck at, right? A guy, let's face it, if you have a guy squat 15, you know, rest pause or a straight set of 15 on squats, he's gonna have to lay down for five or 10 minutes. You have a woman do it, she'll be ready to go again in about 45 seconds and you'll have to hold her back to get her to rest 90 seconds. Like it's, it's amazing watching this in the gym. Women will do a heavy set or even just a challenging set of 15 for lunges or squats and 30 seconds later, they're ready to go. They can handle volume, but they don't necessarily. So it sounds like it's expanding whatever you're biologically not predisposed to. It does. It does very much seem that way. And, and in the case of women, I think it's, again, because you're basically engaged in chemical gender transformation, it's giving them more of a maleistic characteristic. Sure. But it's on top of actually the, the, the volume. Cause, cause, yeah. Right. But they already have a volume component. So now they're getting the load component. Yes. Interesting. And that actually, I mean, that fits, you know, Chinese Olympic lifting team has done a lot of work. <laughs> Their 
of like the poster child for, well, a lot of things. Um, probably gene doping in five or 10 years, but they actually- uh, I think now, I think now. Their women train at a higher volume, at a higher relative intensity for longer periods of time. So you yep. might do six sets at 90% or above for two weeks. The women will do 10 sets at 90% or above for three weeks. Yep. They can handle this intensity. Um, or the, just they just they they can handle a load that would kill a man. Yes. And by the time you add in drugs and everything else, it just gives them the ability to tolerate a load of training that that men can't do. Men agreed. Men, they can do the volume at lower intensity, but not the other way around. Agreed. And that does. And that does. I'm all. I really only brought that up just to show that you know not not only do you need to modulate your your drug use and your off time and your your ancillary stuff and all of this stuff needs to be organized but then probably the percentage of maximum the total volume and etc needs to be scaled alongside the drug dosing in some sort of escalation so again i sympathize because quite literally to succeed women need to be significantly more sophisticated with greater planning much more long-term strategy but it also in the same breath women can make absurd progress it, you know beyond the, the, the difference between the best natural man and the best drug take, taking man is big yeah. but the difference between the best natural female and drug taking female is a speciational change it's it's fucking beyond explanation yeah so that is that is something that i like to point out is that you know in reality, women's sports performance is, is is even a greater thing than men's sports performance. Right. Yeah, I've I've made that comment a couple different places. I go, you know, if you because because women do they respond better to lower dose just because the proportional change, the physiological yep. change that men do. And I go, if you ever see an Olympic coach that can only seem to produce female great female, athletes, <laughs> well, there's a reason for that. And it's not, you know, there's a Chinese marathon coach and suddenly he had these female Chinese marathoners just killing it. He goes, oh, women, women have a higher pain tolerance because of pregnancy and it was the magic turtle blood soup. And of course, he's now been discredited for severe drug use. Yeah. Yeah, if there's ever, if you've got a team that can only produce great female athletes, there's a reason for that and it's not the training so much. Uh, agreed. Absolutely agreed. Training with the drugs, but... Um, so just sort of to wrap up is just to kind of go to what you, so, so woman, how, so it, it sounds like what you're saying that from a bodybuilding perspective, or like for a man who goes on, he can probably, and maybe should just increase his volume because he's already working at high intensity. Mm -hmm. like all of the stories about the guys that muscles get strong, their tendons give out, you know, and mm -hmm. the worst you get a vice because they get stronger faster than their connective tissue. But for a woman, if she's going to use, you're saying, are you saying that she should increase her relative intensity in training to get the most out of the, the drugs? It, it, it seems that way. It does in fact seem that way that the percentage of maximum on average is higher and probably should be higher in females across the board and then especially in women that use drugs. Very, okay, well, very speculatively, and this goes to, you mentioned behavior changes. We know there's enormous biological differences in physiology. I, I've got a powerlifting coach buddy, and he works with both men and women, and he's, he's pointed out to me that women seem to take longer to learn how to express a true max. Yep. I don't know if this is, this could be sociological. This could be not being exposed to it. 
I suspect it's neurological. Women kind of warm up differently sometimes. The Chinese Olympic lifting coaches think that women need more warm up to get clicking. They think it's a body temperature thing. <laughs> Maybe, could be. I think it could also be like, but there are differences in nervous system function. This is all pretty well established. We know that there's androgen receptors in the nervous system. I mean, that's absolutely andro, and we know that's why you can even even acutely get aggressive. You know, if you take a nice short acting oral an hour before training, it may not help your recovery, but it'll certainly make you train. You know, what is it? Check drops, isn't that? Oh yeah, yeah, Mibberlone. Yes, the the poster child for being an aggressive asshole in the gym um, for people who hate their livers. But like, how much of this effect in terms of intensity of training? do you think is being mediated through the nervous system in women? Is it allowing them to train at a, at, or, or express a nervous system function that they couldn't otherwise get to? I, again, I hate to come back to it because I really don't want to sound negative because I'm, I'm not negative on the subject. But again, you have to put this in the context of it's chemical gender transformation. And you're getting going from a female you know, gender to a basically non-female gender. It is well understood that in puberty, DHT conversion, conversion from testosterone to DHT, is one of the major factors that drives motor learning. And yeah. that is what you're talking about in spades. It's the, the ability of the nervous system to direct and operate the fucking body. That's what it is. So yes, when you're giving women these compounds you're basically putting them through male pubescent changes and a greater acquisition of motor function there's no doubt in my mind that that is exactly what's going on there yeah it's funny you'll i think you'll appreciate this so you know without getting into the you know we've got the whole ah gender is a social construct yeah sorry that's part of it but i got news for you right it should all changes at puberty and there's a reason for that because it's biological or there's a biological component to it. And I came across paper and it has like, it tested thousands of little boys and little girls across age ranges for about a billion different things. And one of the, the, the commentaries is something I was reading about it. And it said one of the most pronounced gender-based differences in terms of like motor performance had to do with target acquisition. Like basically men are better and also throwing. Right, basically, and I think mm-hmm. the number it, it stated was something like if you took a huge sample off the street, something like 95 to 99 percent of men would outthrow women. Just, I mean, yes, there's going to be a trained softball athlete you can outthrow the average man. You know, it's the average guy on the street. And then they went and they go, well, how much of it is it social? And they looked at some cultures that like throw spears and shit. And it's like, yep, even there, the girls who learn to throw early on are better at it, but they are still completely show lower performance than the men. And it was actually postulated that this was probably the the reason that men are good at throwing stuff had to do with hunting and throwing. Like the reason we're better at target acquisition, see the target, because we need to kill that thing or watch out for it. And it was was really just an interesting evolutionary of why these motor learning differences yep. exist. I actually had a, a college professor that made a very similar argument ba- uh, about colorblindness. Colorblindness has a much higher proponent uh, preponderance in males, and okay. his, his argument was that is uh, color acuity is much more relevant to the person making food and that sort of thing. Yeah. You know, what's good, what's safe, what's not, and actually not having color acuity makes you more focused on movement and geometry 
which would be good for hunting. You know, yeah. a, a, a you know, tan deer and tan grain yeah. is kind of all just fucking tan, but right. seeing the motion or the shape is how you would hunt. So there's the, the idea that these things are not evolutionary and the idea that they're largely not sorted out by circulating hormone plasma ambient hormone levels is just foolish it's why we are what we are it's why we become what we are it, it, there's it, i don't even understand why there's a stigma to taboo with that it's just fucking what it is yeah yeah no i i <laughs> you'll get some pissed off emails about this like but yeah oh yeah <laughs> no, I don't know that there's really anything left, to, you know, I'm sure people are going to want to know, you know, specifics beyond what was discussed But that. I know the big, your big thing, which I agree with, you know, context goals, obviously strength, performance, muscle size can be different, you know, delineate different choices of, to, uh, of compounds or scheduling and all that, which we can't really get into. Um, I mean, it, it seems like, you know, you can make sure this is correct. Like, it seems like the overall summary as far as women and using anabolic steroids is the dose has to be low, mainly duration. Like, it almost seemed like the dosing is almost secondary to the duration of use. I agree with that. To a degree. Like, obviously, a woman is not going to get away taking 50 milligrams of Winstrol for short periods. But, you know, maybe she would compare to taking 10 milligrams for three times, five times as long. I don't know. Um, I suspect, as I pointed out earlier, I really think it's total dosage over time. Uh, if, you, if you calculated, you know, t 10 milligrams a day for, you know, 50 days or 100 milligrams for five days, you're probably looking at very similar side effect profiles. Which is interesting because actually, the, like, I think that's the, how the Germans dose the oral terenobol. That is exactly right. And the thing in terms of dose per week, dose per day for optimal effects. And they were like, no, this is the dose per year. How yep. it's, and it varied by sport, shop, or I think pole vaulters took much like, because they don't need the body weight increase. That's a skill sport. I'm sure the shot putters and the throwers took higher doses and the swimmers and sprinters were somewhere in the middle. Um, you know, Forbes has his classic analysis. I'm sure you've seen where he, he kind mm -hmm. of... The, 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 where he just, and it's all case studies, it's all anecdote, but it was still, he plotted muscle mass gains by total steroid dose per cycle. Yes. Not by weekly, not by daily, by total dose. And didn't differentiate about compound either. And that, well, that was what was really interesting because people, again, we tend to think simplistically, ah, Winstrol, Anivar, eh. Those are shitty drugs, and they are maybe milligram per milligram, but there was one guy in there that took some ungodly amount of either Winstrol or Anivar, I forget which one it was, of what is typically considered a weak drug, and he gained like 20 kilos of lean body mass. Yeah. But his, dose, his total dosage was staggering. Yeah. Like he was, I don't know what it would have worked out to per week or what, you know, per day, but it was, you know, a hundred milligrams, some ungodly number. Um, Lyle, Lyle, I'm here to tell you in, in the world of men's sports, a hundred milligrams a day isn't that big of a number. Um, I, I've, I don't, I shouldn't even say such a thing out loud, but uh, I've had, I've had direct conversations with people that told me with a straight pace, they had taken 500 milligrams of an oral drug per day for periods of time right well, 500 i think i remember reading in the world anabolic review they said we know two guys who take nothing but oral terenobol <laughs> but they take like something but it was either it's like 20 to 50 per day for short periods of time it it worked out to being you know 200 to 5 milligrams per day when the, the germans were using 
10 to 20. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, yeah, it's almost just, just like, and I even I remember Dan towards the end of his life and his career, because you know what, we've tried all the stacking, the diamond patterns, the cycling, and here's what it comes down to, just take more. Yeah. Because when you plateau, just take more. Yep. And when you come off, you're fucked. I mean, I know he, mm -hmm. you know, he worked on finding ways to cycle off, but now, I mean, I, I joke, people, they think I'm kidding. You know, I, oh, the basin study, 600 milligrams a week. And the punch's like, well, you won't keep growing on. Well, I didn't say you would, but 600 milligrams a week, that's nothing. A gram yeah. a week is considered natural. And I'm like, guys are taking a gram or two, two one to two grams a day. Yeah. I read Paul Boris and stuff. And yeah, yeah. That's funny. You, funny you remember him. Most people don't remember him. I do. That's just your morning shot. And whoever the, there's a bodybuilder that just passed away. And I think they found that his testosterone was what it was at 27,000 nanograms per deciliter. It was 270 times the normal range. And he yeah. And I'll give you a quick little, this is a little, uh, it's funny. You're, 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 you're it, it, we talked about this kind of all the other yeah. day, just you and I, um, I am aware of this because I look at blood work all day long. It's basically what I do for a living. Typically, you are circulating plasma value after peak plasma concentration. So not, you know, not first couple weeks, but six, eight, yeah. ten weeks into things. Whatever your peak plasma concentration is, your dose administered is about one-fifth of that in terms of milligrams. So divide the 30,000 <laughs> – Right. That, he, that he was at by five, and that's probably what he was taking. Per day? Uh, per week in, in yeah. a long-acting drug. So, yeah, so that's about 6,000 milligrams. You know, that's yep. about a gram a day. And I think yeah. when he mathed it out, it was like one to two grams per day of, yep. of total, total, total steroids. Yep. And, um, yeah, people thought I think I'm joking when I say No, that. no, not at all. At that's the highest levels. Um, it's, I mean, it's, it's – well, that gets into a whole separate issue dealing with men, whether it's actually necessary or just because they think it it's can. But that's, yeah. that's that's sort of outside of the, the topic of women. So, um, I don't. I think we basically covered it from dose, compounds, duration, which I think, to your point, is is the way to really think about it. Yes. Uh, and, and the other thing I just really want to reinforce to any women, women listening is just do what women do better than men. And that is fucking think and, and consider the bigger picture and think about all of the many various modalities that are not steroids that will still give you some benefit and arrange them in the best possible scenario to constantly maintain some performance advantage, sparingly use steroids in the lowest possible dose for the lowest possible duration. And that is overall going to give you the longest career and the longest time on this planet remaining a female. Gotcha. It's one last, just another funny tidbit. I was looking at some bunch of running data and there's all kinds of gender sex differences there. And they, it, it, paper that commented that at the sub elite level, men are much worse at pacing marathons than women are. Men are much more likely to die in the second half of the race compared to women who are much more likely to finish. And, and then there's just a throwaway sentence because this raises the possibility of gender issues and essentially risk-taking in common sense. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, it does. It really doesn't because nobody would even question that men on average are much bigger risk-takers. And let's yeah. call it what it is. We're idiots.
testosterone yeah. makes men stupid and we're willing that, to do dumb things. That, the, that's, just that, the unfortunate reality in, when it comes to this topic is women who do that who are, or who are unfortunately under the handling of bad coaches, and you hear that story a lot. You hear the yeah. male coaches who don't consider the differences. And yes. focus on doses that would be potentially excessive for a beginner male. And yep. the, 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 the consequences, there's a reason they talk about ruining an athlete, and they're not talking about injuring them here. They're talking yeah. about ruining them physically, biologically, physiologically, yep. possibly. Metabolically. And again, this is not being hyperbolic. You know, yep. this is the big thing that came out of the GDR stuff. The, the athletes were given drugs against their knowledge or against their will. Several of them, and they had long-term permanent effects. Many of them actually sued like the German sports organization, um, mm -hmm. because several ended up infertile. It, I mean, it basically destroyed them physiologically forever. And yep. that's not a joke. Men can get negatives, but they will go away. Women can get negatives that you may have to live with forever. And yep. that's, that is something that's probably the biggest, like to your point, the biggest difference in consideration. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, well I well, think that, that wraps it up again. Um, it's a short one. Pro pro probably like, pro I don't know, it's probably coming up on an hour and a half, but like our others, this will probably generate enough, you know, questions and commentary that we have to come back and come back and revisit it. But okay. uh, I, did, I had one last one. This was something I heard you mention in a Q&A you did, which is you mentioned, I think, specifically for female strength athletes that primabolin acetate and Masteron were like your key compounds. Is there anything you want to expand on that in terms of the whys, the wherefores, why those specifically? Um, I'm not sure if I said for women Mastron, but Primobon Acetate for sure. Um, um, I, did, I did say that I am aware of a coach who has – who I have the highest respect for, who is okay. very, very deeply convinced that uh, primobol acetate and, uh, or rather, Anivar and Trinobol together, okay, Anivar and Trinobol, Trinobol synergize in a one plus one equals three scenario that does not happen in men, and it is very pronounced and very specific. Um, that you know, for instance, if a woman's comfortable taking twenty total milligrams a day that 10 of Trinobol and 10 of Anivar will generate 30 milligrams worth of progress where either independently won't be. I have no explanation whatsoever for what that mechanism would be, but I've seen, I've seen data. It, it, it really does appear to be the case. And the person which I'm speaking of is an extraordinarily good, successful coach. And I, I believe, I believe them. I just do. Um, and it, that with fewer side effects than you would expect from a higher dose of either individually? He's, he's seeing side effects commensurate to the dosage, but results commensurate to a higher dosage. Gotcha. Okay. So it, it, it really is something worth pointing out. Um, to, to what you said earlier, um, preobolin acetate is probably, both for men and women, but mostly for women, the most understated, underrated, and uh, underutilized drug. Being an acetate, it's it's uh, it's it's not alkylated with the heavy, you know, methyl group like dianabol and et cetera. So it is infinitely less toxic. Okay. Okay. Both, both men and women can gain from that simple chemistry 
you know, fact. It's very short acting because it's an acetate. It is very short acting. Has a half-life like three, four hours. Yes. But way, way lower hepatic load by, by giant margin. Then being primabolin, it has that low androgenic index. Okay. A respectable anabolic index. A great choice. It's hard to find. It's, you know, most of the women out there probably running right now looking. It's very hard to find. But should you be able to find it, I would trade it note for note with Anavar every single time. Um, okay. I, not a question. So, yeah, yes, that's, that is a major thing. Yeah, actually, yeah, I, do, I did misremember. And I think you were saying either Anavar and an oral Turinabol, if you could get it, or Anavar and, and Primabol and Acetate, that that's yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, Mastron's actually one of my very favorite drugs across the board, but it just does not seem to sit well with women. That's a mustache in a bottle. Got it. Fair yeah. enough. Yeah. 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 Real thing. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. I think that probably then pretty much wraps it up for just general, general topics and concepts. I mean, even from a dosing standpoint, that one to three milligrams per kg per, per week, is absolutely place as any you know and and again i think for women listening to this or coaches you know like perspective 60 kilo athlete that's 132 pound female you're looking at 60 to 100 milligrams per week that's 10 to 30 milligrams total per day which yep. most men would scoff at and probably wouldn't do a whole a tremendous amount but you're looking at 10 literally 10 to 30 times what a woman is producing daily mm -hmm. Um, that's profound. If you, you know, that's like taking the same man, scaling the man's dose up, you know, giving him 30 milligrams per kg, um, yep. to get benefit. So I agree. Well, cool. Broderick, as always, I want to thank you for appearing on your own podcast <laughs> and making time out of your busy day, uh, to show up on your own thing. Um, hopefully we provided some, some information. This is one of those topics, you know, I don't know if it's cause there's less, if it's not talked about in female athletes or there's less coaches or people, it seems like there's a lot of information out there for men, but there's just not much out there for women. And if it is out there, it's not very good. Mm -hmm. um, Some of that's, I think that also, you know, people like Dan are, are truly a lost, you know, Dan Duchesne, uh, because Dan had an enormous stable of women. There's a lot of coaches, people like myself, people that do somewhat what I do, but they work with, you know, 50 men, two women, you know, 50 yeah. men, two women. So they're, you know, individually, each body of experience is pretty small. People yeah. like Dan that had that, you know, I've worked with a thousand women. That's a, that's a rare thing in this day and age. Well, and he, he joked one time. I mean, he, I almost when he talked about working with bodybuilding competitors, I think he wrote about this in Body Opus. He's like, you know, working with men is always a pain in the ass because they take the drugs you give them and then they don't go do shit behind your back and lie to you about it. And, yep. you know, basically women, and I found this in coaching, I've tended to coach predominantly women, tend to be follow instructions better and more to the letter they, they, Absolutely. I mean, it can almost backfire. It's almost like if you give them, if you tell them to do X, they will do X, even if it's killing them to do so. Like you yes. almost, it's, it's can, Charlie Francis mentioned that too. He's like, they will do, he talked about, he stopped giving his female athletes written workouts because they would do every set and every rep because it was on the program. And I remember Dan saying specifically that he liked using Anadrol alone because it was easier to control because you weren't trying to control a competitor doing 10 different drugs and lying to you about the other five. Yep. Um, 
So I have to, I think that's part of where his perspective kind of came from in that regards. Probably. And it's sort of true. It was a brilliant dude. I really miss that guy. Yeah, true enough. True enough. All right. Why don't we wrap it up here? And I'm sure you'll get questions that will lead us into a a follow-up to this one at some point. Um, Or maybe we can address ancillaries for women in terms of if there's any specific issues or considerations that they have that men Mm -hmm. don't. Um, Since I think we're finding there's always differences one way or another. Yeah. Um, yeah, and uh, I, I'd like to throw out. I'm I'm pretty sure that you know everyone t- dialing into this podcast pretty pretty familiar with you, and specifically anyone listening to this episode is probably pretty familiar with your book. But if anyone out there is listening and does not you know know about or for that matter own Lyle's you know women's book, it, it, before listening to this, you should read that. It really is. Um, I said uh, rather offhandedly, but I actually, after I said it, I realized I was being more honest than I knew, is if you are, know, or have a female athlete, that's literally the owner's manual. That's important stuff. It's the owner's manual for female athletes. So I I think it's important. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, And every little bit, you know, goes to my, uh, my, my cocaine and hooker fund. That's awesome. And everyone, and everyone should have one of those, or two even, or two even. So, all right. So, folks, I'm sure as you well know, Broderick, I do believe, still does some coaching. So, if you've got questions, you should contact the man, and uh, he will give you expert consulting and counseling. And uh, on behalf of Lyle McDonald, Broderick Chavez, and Evil Genius Sports Performance, we bid you farewell till next time. Thank you for listening to Sports Performance Radio. Thank you.